This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, the Zurich program really exemplifies the convergence of uh, business uh, education for the benefit of all. Uh, and so on behalf of the Brand School, we want to acknowledge the uh, Zurich Financial Services Group for their support uh, and ongoing uh, support both in the past and kind of future of this program. Uh, Dale Jameson has a very long bio, so I'm not going to read through all of it. He is a professor of environmental studies and philosophy uh, and the chair of the environmental studies department at NYU. Uh, for anyone here in the room who's ever been curious about environmental philosophy or ethics, there's a very good chance you have come across Dale's writings at some point, whether it is in his books, uh, edited coll collection of essays that, uh, that he's worked on, uh, all his journal articles. Uh, I have had the privilege of knowing Dale or interacting with him for over 15 years. Uh, I have read a lot of his stuff. I have attended his lectures, and every time... I've interacted uh, with him and his reading. I've always left it, left feeling a bit changed uh, and uh, left it thinking a little bit more deeply about the environment, where we come from, uh, and why we do what we do. I think for many of us who do work on environmental policy uh, or activism, uh, it's always a good time, but certainly now a very kind of poignant time to take a step back and think about where we're going. Uh, where we've come from and what are some of the deeper roots of this movement uh, that we're part of. And Dale's uh, writings and lectures have always kind of been, been uh, elucidated on, on, on these important questions. So I have no doubt that uh, this lecture uh, and what you will uh, uh, witness in the next hour will, will, will deliver on that. And so without further ado, I give you Dale Jameson. All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, for that for that generous introduction. And I also want to thank everyone at the Bren School who has made this visit such a, a, a wonderful visit. I mean, uh, there aren't many universities uh, in the world that you go for a visit and they set you up with everything, including a bicycle. So <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like what what more could I ask? Um, OK, um, so I've gotten you all here today, maybe on slightly false pretenses with, you know, age of Trump, the Trumpocene, and uh, ideas like climate justice. And so I want to begin by, to some extent, deflating expectations. So I, <laughs> so better at the beginning than at the end, right? Um, so I'm not actually going to talk very specifically about climate justice and what that might consist in in the talk, although I'm very happy to talk about those, those, those issues in discussion. Um, I'm just going to mean by climate justice, whatever uh, approach turns out to satisfy some minimal criteria of fairness and effectiveness. That's, that's all I mean for present purposes by, by, in, by climate justice. And when I talk about the age of Trump, I just mean now and going forward. That's all. I don't mean anything particularly cosmic or metaphysical about that. And really what this talk consists in is really an attempt uh, for me to try to extend the thinking that's in my book, Reason in a Dark Time, uh, to the post-2014 world. And I've tried to do that uh, a little uh, with a co-author in a paper on nature climate change 
uh, talks about the Paris Agreement and the possibilities of it being effective, and also in a new preface to the paperback version of Reason in a Dark Time, which should be out sometime this, this year. But what I'm trying to do today is a little more exp expansive, uh, a little more speculative, uh, and uh, some of this may chime with you, some of this may seem to fall completely uh, into the mud. So we'll see. So the outline of the talk is, I'm going to first talk about the politics of the Trump era. How did this happen? How did we get to where we got? Then I'm going to talk about the currents that drive climate policy and try to say something about what will happen in the near term. But then I want to focus on the deep current of the Anthropocene, which I think drives what may happen long term. And then finally, I'll come up to the shallows and try to make some remarks about how we might navigate the shallows. Okay, so first, the politics of the Trump era. How did it happen? Well, I think we're all pretty aware that there are in our system what we might call democratic deficits. Um, one of the more obvious one has to do with the funding of elections as, as they occur in the United States. And this is a topic that's gotten a lot of attention recently. But it should be remembered uh, that uh, Trump was outspent by Hillary Clinton maybe as much as two to one. So the old saw that it's all about campaign finance certainly didn't apply to this election. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's hard to deny that our system of funding campaigns isn't one of the deficits of our system. Now, um, now, if you start talking about what democracy means in America to a political scientist or a political theorist, they will immediately uh, accuse you of of the fallacy of thinking that democracy is necessarily majoritarian. And people will talk about the varieties of democracy and the idea that a democracy can have anti-majoritarian institutions within a, a, what is a broadly democratic society. But if we go through this anti-majoritarian tendency in the American political system in a systematic way, the fact is it's actually hard to find anything in American democracy today in terms of how it's functioning that is actually majoritarian. So most of us are aware of the fact that the Supreme Court is an explicitly and self-consciously anti-majoritarian institution. We also know about the Electoral College. Everyone now knows about the Electoral College, uh, which was also instituted to be a, a counter-majoritarian institution. But we now have, uh, if the last five presidential elections, two of them have now gone to people who didn't win the plurality of the, pop, of the, of, of the popular vote. So even if you like, even if you think the executive the choice of the executive should also be a non-majoritarian choice, you still might be a little disturbed at the frequency in which the popular vote is beginning to diverge from the electoral vote. But when we move to the legislative branch, which you think might be the most majoritarian uh, part of our government, it's actually kind of shocking if you actually towed up the, the popular vote and compare it to the allocation of seats. So in the Senate, the Democrats actually won 56% of the vote in the last cycle. 
while Republicans won 65% of the seats. So you kind of go, well, okay, so the Senate is the least majoritarian house in, uh, in the legislative branch. But actually, uh, when we look at the House elections, the fact is the Republicans only won 48.7% of the popular vote for House seats, but yet won 55.4% of the seats. Now, this, the point I'm making here is not particularly a point about Republicans. It's really a point about how even if you accept the idea that a democracy needn't be a kind of strongly majoritarian system in the way that it is in the United Kingdom, for example, nevertheless, you're very hard put to find anything that actually reflects majority preferences in the current functioning of the American um, political system. Okay, now I'm going to drill down uh, a little on the Electoral College, uh, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these slides. So, so basically what this slide brings out is that in the Electoral College, there is a very strong bias towards small states. It's kind of obvious in terms of the way that we actually identify the number of, le of electors that each state has. Uh, and, this, and, and this slide tries to quantify the voting power of voters in particular states because it's quite differential in terms of affecting the choice of a president. And actually, there's different ways of computing voting power where you even get uh, even more extreme differences. If you actually consider, for example, the probability that a single vote will actually flip the state, uh, then the differential in voting power is even greater. Now... Um, now, the state bias actually then is amplified by another bias, which is that small states in which voters have more voting power actually tend to be white states. So the voting power disparity then translates into voting power disparity with respect to racial and ethnic groups. Now, when you, uh, when you take all this together and you actually look at the way politics is, is practiced in America, it's really become clear in the last couple of decades that underneath all the storm and drama of political campaigns, what they're really about is turnout. They're about turning out your lot and preventing their lot from voting. These are really the variables on which American elections now turn. Now, this slide is actually the slide that explains the outcome uh, of the election, of this last election. But it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to read. So blue is non-Hispanic white voters. And what you see is in the 2016 cycle, there is a significant bump up here. The non-Hispanic black voters declined from the Obama years, but it should be noted to people who often, I think, criticize the Clinton campaign and the way the Clinton campaign ran among African-Americans, that that's still, by historical standards, a very high African-American turnout. But essentially, uh, in, in an election that's this close, it's open to lots of different kinds of explanations. I don't want to say that one explanation uh, is, is the right one and all others are wrong and you can't explain the outcome in any other ways. But, what, but what's really clear here, I think, is that Trump won the election 
by squeezing out a relatively high white voter, voter turnout. I mean, that's the variable that really changes. And you might wonder why uh, that happened. Um, so what these graphs, now, I mean, and so one of the hypotheses that people often talk about is economic anxiety. And so what you have here on the X uh, axis is a measure of economic anxiety versus the probability of voting for a particular candidate. So what you see is in the Romney case, the more economic anxiety people had, the more likely they were actually to vote for the Democratic candidate. In the Trump case, you actually get a kind of normalization of this so that there's not much effect uh, at all uh, in voting intentions in terms of economic anxiety. So that doesn't actually, I mean, that explains why Trump might have done better than Romney among some groups, but it doesn't actually explain uh, how, how the election was affected. But where you really do see a strong effect is on measures of racial resentment and animosity towards black uh, uh, influence. And so the greater racial resentment there is on these measures and animosity about black influence, the probability of voting for Trump actually starts to skyrocket at that point. And now we can begin to map that kind of data on political party membership, uh, because we know that membership in a political party is actually the single strongest determinant of how somebody votes. And I think it's pretty amazing when you look at this about perceptions of bias across different party lines and how, and how radically different they are. Uh, you can see that um, Republicans perceive bias against Christians uh, and whites um, as actually being, um, as, as being very significant forms of bias in, in, in America, greater than bias against blacks, for example, is the perception, right? Um, so it's not difficult to really read racial attitudes now back into the party from that. Uh, and then if you put these graphs together in terms of party membership, what you see is that uh, economic anxiety is actually highest among blacks and Latinos who tended to vote Democratic in the last election. Immigration marks a big difference of attitude, uh, again, with Democrats being pro-immigration and racial resentment and black influence animosity skyrockets among Republicans compared to Democrats. So uh, all of this data taken together then uh, informs two recent books that have been published uh, on the outcome of the election. This book just actually came out, I think, about, about a week ago now. It was finally, finally published called Identity Crisis. And this is just the blurb for the book, which basically states the conclusion Identity crisis reveals how Trump's victory was foreshadowed by changes, et cetera, et cetera. The campaign then reinforced and exacerbated those cleavages as it focused on issues related to race, immigration, and religion. And the tendency for Americans to increasingly vote on the basis of identity uh, has been growing, and that's well documented in another recent book called Democracy for Realists. Which, a basic, which basically argues that many of us have what uh, Aiken and Bartels call a kind of folk theory of democracy. And in the folk theory of democracy, we think that people uh, look at issues, they assess issues, and then choose candidates on that basis. But actually what Aiken and Bartels show is that even well-informed and politically engaged voters 
mostly choose political parties and candidates on the basis of social identities and partisan loyalties, not on the basis of issues. And you see a little bit of this already in the post-Trump election world, where policy shifts have been quite dramatic, but yet Trump voters and supporters have tended to follow through these policy shifts uh, without apparently feeling much by way of anxiety. Okay, um, so that's the kind of political system that's brought us to where we are. And I think you could ask the question that even if our democracy didn't quite have the deficits that it does, there's still a pretty profound question, I think, about whether democracies, even well-functioning democracies, are capable of dealing with these long-term, slow-onset problems like problems of climate change. All right. Um, so the second question, the second issue, uh, is what's going to happen in the near term? And I'm, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this. There's a lot of people who have been engaged in various kinds of modeling exercises to try to figure out what some of the Trump climate change, I mean, one hesitates to call them climate change policies at this point, but what, but the actions that might actually be taken by the Trump administration and what its effects might actually be on U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So there's, there's modeling work being done on this. And, uh, and just to try to simplify this from one, one scenario, if you have 100% Paris compliance, um, uh, that basically uh, means that you'll get 580 billion tons of CO2 emissions through 2030, of which the U.S. Paris compliant emissions will be 65 billion tons. And uh, the Trump effect on this one particular model run is about 11 billion tons. Now, I don't want to say that 11 billion tons of CO2 emissions is nothing. It's not nothing, okay? Uh, it's not, you know, it's not chopped beef or whatever. But... Um, uh, but given the total global emissions profile, uh, it's not a very large piece of what the world, even in a Paris-compliant Paris world, will actually be emitting. Now, uh, so, you know, we can do these modeling exercises and we can make various assumptions about what might actually wind up policy and how it might affect U.S. emissions and so on. But I actually think that this is an area where some pretty common sense observations uh, are just as revealing. So as the great philosopher Yogi Berra once pointed out, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And I think one of the things that, you know, one of the observations we can make from the last eight years is whatever I think you, if you're in climate world at all, it's pretty obvious that Obama had assembled a kind of climate change dream team around him. I mean, he really did have the, he had the best and the brightest and people who were very politically astute, not just in the White House, but in the agencies as well. This was a really remarkable team that he had assembled. Um, but yet, you saw how difficult it was to bend the curve on, on, on U.S. emissions, right? That essentially what you managed to put together was a kind of very decentralized regime that was vulnerable to various kinds of legal and political challenges, where basically everything had to go right for the U.S. to be Paris compliant. Not an easy job. So it's kind of hard to believe that if you have a less competent government, and again, I don't mean this as a political comment, just as a sort of basic comment about the plumbing, it's pretty clear that the current government 
administration is just less competent in terms of carrying out uh, its intentions. If you have a less competent government, it's hard to believe that it can bend the curve more dramatically than a more competent government could. So, so you know, trying to bend up versus bending down, whatever, these are very hard curves uh, to bend. Now, you might think that just as noise drives out silence, one can often more effectively harm than benefit. And I think that's true. I mean, you can kind of screw things up easier than actually, you know, build something here. But the fact is that emission profiles are so complex and multifactorial that the efficacy of a single actor, even the president of the United States, is pretty limited uh, in this debate. Now, what I think is hard to anticipate are what the kind of indirect knock-on effects of changes in U.S. governance might, might be. Um, a, a big piece of what's going to happen in terms of emissions over the next few decades depends on market sig signals. It depends on how confident firms actually feel about making planning decisions uh, on the supposition that carbon emissions are going one way rather than another. So anything that throws more uncertainty into the system is going to affect those decisions in various ways. Uh, but it's very difficult to predict how it's going to affect those decisions. Similarly, when it comes to the behavior of other nations, uh, it's very difficult to predict over a four-year or eight-year period, or perhaps even longer, exactly how U.S. actions are going to affect actions that other nations take. But I feel, anyway, that the Trump effect is likely to be much more prominent with respect to many other issues, even many other environmental issues, than it's going to be with respect to climate change. Uh, a, a lot can happen, for example, in the public lands domain very easily and very quickly compared to changing the profile of carbon emissions. Okay, so, um, so now I want to say something about the deep current of the Anthropocene. Uh, and talk about what might actually happen in the long term. So, one of the things that we're all very aware of uh, is what has come to be called denialism. And in the broader politi political domain, we've all, there's also been a lot of talk lately about populism. And I want to begin by talking about denialism and populism, and then say something about what I think the drivers are of those. So uh, Naomi Reskes and Eric Conway published a book some years ago, essentially showing that the same strategies involved in climate change denialism have been in play on a whole range of other environmental and public health issues, really going back for decades, and in some cases, it, it's not just that it's the same strategies, it's actually the same people who have been involved in these campaigns. But I think it's important uh, to recognize, let me go back to that other slide. Well, maybe I'll go here. I think it's important to recognize that in American society, denialism isn't just about environmental issues. It's about uh, a range of issues. Public health issues, for example. We have... We have denialism about vaccination, for example, which is increasingly influential in American society. We're used to denialism about evolution. This has been around uh, uh, quite some time now. 
But there is a kind of rising tide of denial along a range of different... And they have a different logic to some extent. Each of these campaigns has a somewhat different logic. And it, and it makes sense to try to pay attention to that different logic. But on the whole, I think uh, it's helpful to think about this uh, as a kind of denialism about expertise as the kind of generic category. Now, this is a recent book by Tom Nichols. Um, you know, uh, uh, book publishing isn't all that it used to be, so people love uh, these kinds of titles. The death of expertise, right? It's perhaps a bit, you know, overstating it. Um, but nevertheless, I think the survey data indicates this. We see this in, 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 in all kinds of uh, local and, and, and larger campaigns, that there is increasing skepticism uh, in uh, uh, about expertise. And, and where does this come from? Well, we can speculate, I think, in a lot of different ways. The internet provides the kind of illusion of competing expertises at, uh, at people's command. Um, if you don't like one expert, you just get on Google and find another expert. And if you're an unsophisticated user of the internet, it can be very difficult to distinguish different kinds of experts and different kinds of expertise. Uh, there's also arguments that uh, higher education has increasingly become a kind of consumer relationship um, rather than a relationship of, of sort of expert to apprentice, if you, might, if you might say, and that this also changes attitudes towards expertise. Uh, and then when it comes to the media in the United States, we used to have something called the Fairness Doctrine, for example, which at least required a certain kind of balance. But now uh, in our media environment, essentially people can get up and say, whatever they want, and the only thing that seems to distinguish somebody saying P and somebody saying not P is getting the most ratings and commanding the most advertising dollars. So it's always hard to know with these things to what extent, if they're true, that these are sort of the symptoms of the death, or at least the illness of expertise, uh, or to what extent are the causes. That's, that's another issue. But they do seem to be associated um, phenomena. Now, I think underlying this death of expertise is, uh, is, is, is something that we might think of as a kind of public epistemology. Okay, it's kind of a big phrase. But, uh, and now, now, you might think that the kind of epistemology, the way of knowing, the way of accrediting knowledge that, uh, that many of us are committed to as part of universities uh, might be thought of as a kind of realist epistemology. There are some facts about the world, and expertise consists in the ability to find out those, those facts and to assemble them into compelling theories that explain the world, right? Kind of a, for most of us in this room, probably a kind of common sense uh, epistemological commitment to how the world works. Well, uh, beginning in about the 1980s, there began to be a lot of uh, anxiety uh, about the rise of a kind of epistemological relativism. And often this was talked about under the roof of postmodernist term. Uh, this also came out politically in the 1980s during the Reagan years. There was a book by uh, a former NYU professor, Neil Postman, called Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, who was basically fixated on the idea that politics had become increasingly a matter of entertainment and much less about the kind of core idea that there was some truth uh, that underlied these, these 
these prescriptions. And then in the administration of George uh, W. Bush, we got this famous phrase about sort of a reality-based people and people who are making their own reality. Right? You are the people who just slavishly follow reality. You're the people who are creating new realities, right? So these are, are sort of are sort of different uh, pictures about what what counts as real. I mean, I, if I don't like the real world, I'll just make my own real world, right? It's a, it's a, it's a kind of relativism. But arguably, we're now entering a, a, a different public phase, a phase of public epistemology, which we might call epistemological nihilism. Because even people who wanted to create their own realities were talking about creating realities that were consistent and they wanted to make persistent. But arguably, a lot of what increasingly we, we say is that the reality is whatever someone with power says it is. And if the person who has the power to dictate reality decides it's something different tomorrow, then it's something different. So there's really, there's really no commitment to any consistent picture uh, of the truth or of reality that goes on through time. So you can see how this kind of shift in public epistemology then is going to undermine the whole idea of expertise, right? Because the whole idea of expertise rests on the idea that there's some truths about the world that experts have uh, some access to. And if and if the truths about the world are just whatever I say it is at any given moment, then, then who needs experts? Okay. Um, now, uh, I want to say something about populism, and then I'm going to talk about what I think is driving both of these tendencies. So the first thing here to recognize is that what people call populism these days is not very much like uh, what historians talk about as populism in terms of 19th century and early 20th century American political populism. Um, but there is something that ties people together, like a kind of an odd group in other ways, like Trump and Le Pen and the Brexit movement and Berlusconi and Chavez and even uh, Xi in China and a whole list of other people. Uh, now, she, I wouldn't say anti-elitist, but most of these other movements are self-consciously anti-elitist. They reject pluralism in their societies and uh, in terms of thought. And typically, there's a charismatic leader that claims the sole authority to speak on behalf of the nation. So those are really kind of the characteristics of this new populism that is been quite influential uh, in the world. Now, what's driving this? Now, this, this is going to seem, I think, maybe like the biggest jump uh, in this talk. But in some ways, it's also, I think, the most important hypothesis, if you want to call it that, or speculation, if you want to call it that. And that is that these trends are being driven by the Anthropocene. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time saying what the Anthropocene is. I think this is a concept probably familiar uh, to all of you. Um, but when people ask me what the Anthropocene is, I just show them this picture. Uh, you know, th this is what um, Manhattan Island looked like when Henry Hudson sailed up the Hudson River in the early uh, 17th century. It was inhabited by the Lenape Indians and so on. And this is what it was. This is what it is today. If you don't think that's a difference, then uh, uh, I, you know, we're not speaking the same, the same language. It's that transition. Uh, now, 
Um, now, so what you're seeing here, so one way of describing what you're seeing on the left, and of course, I could show you a lot of data that would be making the same point, but one way of describing what you're seeing on the left is the human domination of nature, right? I mean, that's essentially what's happened in the transition from the photograph on the right to the one on the left. And so what powers that? Well, it's powered by large populations, right? So, um, you know, so many, 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 many more people living there. Uh, it's also um, powered by high levels of consumption, right? You've got all these things moving in uh, to be consumed in, this, in these spaces. And it's uh, also powered by uh, a reliance on incredibly powerful technologies. And, um, and what's important about technology is that it makes action at both spatial and temporal distance possible in all kinds of ways, drone strikes, famine relief, climate change. The, the example I, I, I like to use is Henry Sidgwick, who's a 19th century British philosopher who believed that our moral obligations extended through time and space, shouldn't be parochial and so on. He would sit in the senior common room in the late 19th century in Cambridge, and a two-week-old news report of a famine in Bengal would come to him. And he would be very upset, and he would organize his friends and relatives and uh, fellow members of the Church of England, and he would try to organize supplies and some famine relief you know, to be sent, and so on and so forth. And even with someone who has a kind of universal global consciousness, uh, acting is taking weeks and months, and you know. And now the contemporary equivalent of Henry Sidgwick, who kind of sees this flash on the internet, immediately logs onto his bank account and empties it out for World Vision or something, right? I mean, that. I mean, that's what technology allows you to do in terms of creating action at a distance. It also creates radical transparency, which we all love, and a radical loss of privacy, which at least everyone over 30 hates. <laughs> now, I just want to bear down on one very specific impact that I think that this has in, uh, on our political institutions. So a distinction between the public and the private is absolutely foundational to traditional liberalism as it's been theorized since the 18th century. There is a domain that's the business of the state, and there's a domain that's the business of private individuals, where it, it, it ain't nobody's business what I do, to quote Bessie Smith, a great political theorist, right? And, and this is very much, I mean, this is very commonsensical to us. This is just fundamental to what liberalism has meant in the West. But yet, when we think about climate change, which we can think of as kind of, you know, the camel's nose of the Anthropocene, right? The first of these issues that we're being impacted by. The, in, the behaviors that contribute to climate change are behaviors that have traditionally been regarded as being private. Driving cars, food choices, how we invest our money, whether, whether to have children or not, right? So, so the problems of the Anthropocene are breaking down that public-private distinction, where we see the public problems are now being driven not by public actions, but by private actions, however indirect across these spatial and temporal boundaries. And so what I think is that together they lead to the erosion 
of a sense of individual responsibility, an increase in complicity. I mean, I don't cause climate change when I fly to Santa Barbara to lecture on climate change. <laughs> but yet, I'm complicit in this somehow, and in terms of everything I do, I am in some way complicit, but in nothing I do am I actually full-on responsible right, to bringing about these problems. And I think it's exactly that uh, difficulty to distinguish complicity and causation that leads to this erosion of responsibility. So the paradox of the Anthropocene is that we have the collective human domination of nature, but a loss of a sense of individual agency. Okay, now I'm going to try to wrap up pretty quickly here, navigating the shallows. What, what can we do here and now? Well, first of all, of course, we can act pragmatically to reduce emissions and encourage adaptation and resilience. And incentives matter enormously, as anyone here who works in environmental economics obviously knows. And so there's a lot to be said about that. Secondly, we can and should work uh, on reforming our political institutions, those democratic deficits that I talked about, there are ways of trying to fix some of them that would make things uh, better. I also think, and this is where people look at me like I'm a guy from another planet, we need to create better citizens. I mean, I, 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 I mean, there is such a thing as a concept of citizenship that I think has fallen into disrepair. And it's not silly to actually talk about what that means and how to do it. But finally, I also think we need to think about the kinds of institutions that are going to be adequate for a high population, high consumption, technologically dense world of the Anthropocene. And we have to remember that it's, you know, it isn't that change, oh, is change going to happen? Is really, change is inevitable. That's the way of the world. Change is inevitable, but it's almost always unpredictable. And I just uh, want to end with, uh, with one story because I, 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 think it's, I think it's encouraging. Because, you know, you can get all these kind of rational choice explanations about why nothing would ever change, you know, whether it's a revolution or whether it's on climate change or whatever. But then you look at history, and the fact is that Britain dominated both the seas and the international slave trade right up to the moment that they abolished it. And just before uh, the abolition, uh, the British West Indian sugar production constituted about 4% of their national income. The abolition of the slave trade cost them nearly 2% of national income annually for 60 years and cost more than, than, than 5,000 lives. If the British can abolish the Atlantic slave trade, we can abolish carbon. Thank you. <laughs> two aisles, um, and if you just uh, raise your hand, I guess I'll let Dale take questions, and we'll just Thank you. Um, so I was intrigued by the place where you got to at the end of the talk, right, that the sort of key feature of the Anthropocene is this um, human domination of nature and a simultaneous erosion of responsibility which you could argue is essentially a global version of the tragedy of the commons, right? That, I mean, you know, Hardin was here at Santa Barbara and that's what you have there, right? You have the shared ecosystem, 
people only feel partially responsible for it, the sort of cumulative effect. And I'm interested in thinking, you know, so we have all the Ostrom research on um, common property uh, management systems and how they work in the small scale. Um, but you as an ethicist, I'm interested in what does ethics teach us or how could ethics help us think about how you build a sense of responsibility in this sort of larger, uh, in this larger setting of human domination of nature? Okay, so I will um, put aside my temptation to want to say something about hard <laughs> to at least respond to your question directly. I think that the recovery of agency begins at home. It begins with small things that, that people do as individuals. The problem is that we're living in a world in which the message that people are getting is it doesn't matter what I do. Right. But, you know, and they go, oh, you know, climate change. Oh, what, you know, it, it, voting. It doesn't matter what I do. Fact is, uh, there's one way that it matters enormously what you do, which is you can actually live in accordance with your values or not. That's up. That's up to you. Right. It's not up to you whether that prevails. And, and right. And whether climate change is stopped in its tracks because you're living in accordance with your values. But what is in your domain is reflectively creating and adopting a set of values and living by it. And I think that if you have a society in which the first step is to recognize that agency begins not by throwing out the president, but it begins with people recognizing what they have power over and what they don't, then you start moving up the chain towards, towards collective action, in part because there's no real distinction, despite the fact people try to bifurcate these things, really between individual and collective action. Um, when I ride my bicycle in New York, which I do, crazily enough, this, um, this is not only an individual action, but it also makes a difference in an incremental difference in terms of how transportation planning goes and so on and so forth. The only reason we have a wonderful system of bike lanes in New York that was mostly created by Mayor Bloomberg is because there are enough of us crazy people going out and making trouble in the street for the bike lanes. Hey, Dale. Provocative and interesting, as always. So I, I wanted to ask you to brainstorm a bit about a point you made at the end about institutions for the Anthropocene. because. Right. The institutional points you made beforehand struck me really as, as separate from Anthropocene. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, a majoritarianism versus representative democracy, that's not an, uh, that's not an Anthropocene issue. So, so when you said institutions for the Anthropocene, where, where sort of in your mind does, does that take you? Yeah, um, the answer. I mean, I wish I had an answer for that question, but I mean, I mean, I mean, first of all, you're exactly right. I use this this metaphor for the for the paper about going ever deeper into the current the currents where the anthropocene is the deepest current and this kind of institutional reform is happening at a much more shallow level so you read me exactly right there i mean i think when it comes to these new institutions for the anthropocene we just really don't know at this at this point we've hardly started uh, to begin and I'll only say that the um you know rather than making some stuff up and saying some wilty things that 
you know, isn't really going to be helpful to anyone. I'll, I'll just say that the problem is actually even worse than it seems because this erosion of agency comes not only from the Anthropocene, but it also comes from the rise of neuroscience and the rise of social psychology. And, and it's not even really clear whether anything like the Enlightenment conception um, of agency is, is going to survive, uh, you know, in this new period. Now, something will replace it, if, if not, because there has to be something which theorizes and understands our control over our own lives. But it may not look very much like rational, autonomous you know, agent of, uh, of, the, of the groundwork of the metaphysical physics of morals. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I had um, a question about um, what you said about the citizenship and trying to create good citizens. And my question around that is, how do you reconcile the idea that the people in this room might have of being a good citizen versus the idea that Trump's voter base might have of being a good citizen? Uh, well, I, I can't really answer that question because that would presume that I know more about people in this room than I know. And it would also presume that there is such a sharp difference in the conception of citizenship. What I'm most, I mean, actually, what I'm most confident of and most impressed by is a kind of collective change in the sense of citizenship, which I, and I think I even know how to explain that. So, for example, I, I mean, when I grew up, there was this, you know, kind of very strong idea that to be a citizen was really different from being an economic actor. And there were things that you did because there were duties of citizenship that were, were questions of economic self-interest were just completely beside the point. And so I kind of came into the world thinking everybody thought like that, which I later realized was not true. But, but, but I think it makes sense because my parents' generation grew up during the Depression and although in the Depression people wanted stuff because they wanted to survive, there was also a huge emphasis on what and discussion debate about a just society. The Depression was not just seen as a, um, you know, as a collapse in an economic system. It was seen as a crisis for the very idea of America. So, so they lived through that experience. And my father went off and fought in World War II. Um, in which the issues were framed as the issues between democracy and American ideals versus, you know, Nazism. Then I grew up in the world of the Cold War, um, where issues, again, were framed as kind of American democracy versus communism. We had a, a selective service draft system, which uh, demanded a certain moral response, whether that was to allow yourself to be drafted or whether to resist the draft and so on. And I think part of what's happened is that we don't live in a world anymore in which there's anything like a framing of ideal citizenship, of American citizenship against some other set of ideals. So rather than separating kind of Trumpies from Brennies on this issue, I'm I mean, what I'm more impressed by is, is, is the kind of diachronic change through time. And I suspect that there have been other periods of American history that were much more like this one. And that actually I grew up with this relatively heightened sensitivity to a certain notion of citizenship in a very particular historical moment that might not have been true, you know, several generations before.
Hi, thank you. But going off of uh, your idea of citizenship, how does that work when you're thinking about communities within the United States in particular that are marginalized and their idea of what their sense of citizenship is in contrary to the predominant white perception of what citizenship is in the U.S., which we're starting to see throughout our country, kind of? Well, again, I don't know enough, uh, you know, to really make exactly that kind of distinction. I mean, um, I mean, sometimes people say, for example, like, so, so, so one of the things that's often said about immigrants, for example, is that is that increasingly immigrants come to the United States for economic reasons and the idea, you know, sort of the political ideals um, play no significant role and so on, which I think may well be true. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, again, without making a political statement, but in the world in which I grew up in, in which there was a certain set of norms of citizenship that prevailed, when Donald Trump said about not paying taxes, that makes me smart that would have been the end of his political career. I mean, in, in the 1950s, that would have been the end of his political career, full stop. No Republican would have voted for him at that point. I mean, I'm exaggerating, no, right? So I don't know about whether we have, you know, if it's exactly about clashing ideals of citizenship in our contemporaneous society. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But again, I'm much more struck by this kind of collective historical change in the idea of citizenship. The only other thing I guess I'll say about that is, first of all, uh, insofar as we think about citizenship uh, these days, we think about it in terms of voting, which is an incredibly shallow and misleading idea of citizenship. But the other thing that I want to show you, uh, because you did mention marginalized groups, is when we look at, uh, it's not this slide, uh, when we look at voter turnout data, one of the things that I personally find most disturbing is actually if you look at the Hispanic voter turnout data, uh, and particularly what happens in midterm elections, um, you know, that's very, very sad. And certainly a big part of the explanation for that is voter suppression and sort of anti-immigrant ideas and so on. But, you, but like most issues, you also have to wonder about the community itself and what's happening internally to the community. Thanks very much for that provocative talk, Dale. Um, Yoel Harari spoke on our campus a few months ago, the author of Sapiens and yeah, Homo Deus. Right. It was a fascinating talk. And he, he touched on some of the same issues you did, in particular that voters, you know, vote more from tribalistic tendencies than that are critical analysis of issues. But his take was a little different. He said that the problem is the policy issues have become so complex that no individual, yet, yet even an elected official, can really make a decision. And climate change is a really good example of that. There's so much disinformation, the problems are complex, the solutions are difficult. And his suggestion is, was that um, we should use algorithms to vote. So in other words, an algorithm would analyze you through your emails, through your Facebook choices, through your friends, and then guide you to your vote. It would say you should vote for Hillary Clinton because you know these are your various predilections. I know it sounds heretical, and antithetical kind of to our liberal ideas, but I was just curious if you could 
see your way to thinking that might be a useful step. Thank you. Um, so, so, so thanks for that. This is a really interesting suggestion. So the first, so the first thing I want to say is, um, is that I think this complexity also goes with what the Anthropocene is about. It, it goes with the power of technology. It goes with the fact that by flipping a switch here, I can set off a, a causal chain that can affect people around the world and so on in a way that would never have been the case in the past. So it isn't as though the complexity is sort of an independent variable here. It's, it's, it, it's actually um, you know, endemic to all the other things that are driving the Anthropocene. Yeah, so, so, I mean, in, in terms of this algorithm thing, I mean, I, you know, I think, um, you know, at some level, we're going to get down to uh, a discussion about technology. And the algorithm idea is another way of trying to bend the technology in a way that in some sense is supposed to serve our values and ideals. But what are our values and ideals? right? In the first place. And how do we identify them? And what is the best access that we have to them? And the algorithm approach essentially involves seeing ourselves from a third person point of view rather than as an agent, right? Because what that algorithm is doing is observing my behavior and then essentially saying, you did A, B, and C, so that means you would like D. But something has already gone badly amiss with the idea of agency if I only know what my values and preferences are by actually looking at some objectification of my own behavior. Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Tom Nichols' book. I found it really interesting. Um, I want to ask again about uh, your conception of this better citizenship. Your response earlier kind of seemed to me to focus on sort of like moral relativism and social norms and kind of how those influence one another. I'm wondering if you think that being a better citizen being a better citizen means that we have some sort of like epistemological responsibility or like that we need to, uh, you know, that we need to give up epistemological nihilism as you described it in order to sort of like achieve better citizenship. No, I think that's a phrase, epistemological responsibility. And it's, and it's one, it, it's both an obligation and even theoretically understanding what the content of that obligation might be that we actually don't even really take very seriously any, any, anymore, you know. So one of the interesting things, and just in terms of the history of democratic theory, is a lot of people who were some of the great radical Democrats of all time, people like John Stuart Mill, for example, um, actually believed that there should be an epistemological test for voting that not just anybody should be allowed to vote, that if you didn't know anything and you sort of hadn't done your due diligence about things, forget it, you shouldn't be allowed to vote. Now, I, I'm not endorsing that view so much as I am saying that even in, with the rise of democratic theory, there was always a concern about, about you know, who these citizens were and what they were going to be like and what was going to drive their preferences and, and and choices. And I think that even when we tend to kind of, you know, and, and there's a lot of work that gets done about things like levels of knowledge and attitudes, which I always find, you know, sort of too gross to be really useful. So, so for example, there's, there's a paper that probably you know that relates uh, scientific knowledge to attitudes towards climate change and essentially says there's, there's no relation or it's even a negative correlation. But what's very unsatisfying about that paper is it doesn't 
I mean, it doesn't actually in any way control for knowledge, you know, scientific knowledge is actually being anything that's actually relevant to climate change, <laughs> right? And so it's not at all surprising, you know, that, I mean, you know, Shockley, uh, you know, um, uh, won a Nobel Prize in something or other, and that didn't prevent him from being kind of a vicious <laughs> avatar of racism on American college campuses in the 60s, you know? So, so there's, I mean, so it's... A, it, it's a real substantive and important question that you asked that I'm not answering in case you didn't notice about about exactly, I mean, what it is that people need to know and how they, you know, from my point of view, it's much more how to think anyway and having certain capacities and skills than it is actually about mastering a body of knowledge. And it's also about sincerity, you know, I mean, um, another thing that's kind of interesting is how much we're focused on hypocrisy. These, these days, you know? I mean, this, I think, also goes back to that kind of radical transparency idea. And the, and the interesting thing to me is, in some sense, a hypocrite is just somebody who didn't quite live up to their own standards, right? In some sense, there's nothing really bad about being a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. None of us live up to our own standards. What's really bad is a lack of sincerity, right? And that's a completely different idea, you know, than the idea of hypocrisy. So, so there's a lot of shaping, I think, that we need to do really collectively and we can do to, to try to figure out what this idea of citizenship might mean in a society like this. But first we have to get people interested in that project and not honestly just have both political parties just trying to wheel their people out as long as they're breathing to vote and to try to keep the other gang you know, from actually showing up. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.